Good morning. Good to see everybody. There we go. Hi. Good. It's always awkward when you say good morning and no one says good morning back. Um, but um, yeah, I have a real lighthearted topic for you guys today. Uh, we're continuing our, our, our sermon series uh, called Credo on what we believe. And I have the exciting topic of hell to, uh, to talk with you guys about. Yeah, um, you know, it was funny. I was sitting with the pastors uh, a couple of Tuesdays ago. We were praying, and, and Jody was kind of just giving us the, you know, July schedules as far as who was going to be preaching and topics and things. And, you know, Kule gets evangelism, which is next week. And Ira gets uh, government, which or evangelism next week. And Ira gets uh, government, which was last week. And I could feel every eye on that Zoom call burning into my head when it was like, who's going to do hell? And uh, I said, yeah, what the hell? Let's do it. Um, it's fun to say that with your mom present. Um, be able to curse in front of your mom. It's one of a lifetime opportunity. Um, but I, I titled this sermon, Hell No. Hell No. And um, I, this, is a, this was a tough topic to, to talk about and to, to research it. I don't know about you, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about hell. It's not a, a topic that I spend a lot of time thinking about or or studying, and so I um, really just want to give a, a really surface-level understanding of what hell is, but also how it really points to the goodness of God. I don't know if that is something that you've thought about or have ever had to confront before, is how hell actually points to the goodness of God. And I want to start off with a story. There's a, there was a thief who stole a vehicle, and as he was driving, he was impressed by how adamant the police and the owner of the vehicle were to get their vehicle back. I mean, they were going, doing everything they could to stop this vehicle. And he thought this was kind of out of the ordinary. This wasn't a a normal procedure. Usually they stole it and people kind of gave up when he was uh, driving off with it after a while. But these people, they, they were adamant. They continued to pursue him. As he was sitting there, he looked to his right at the, the passenger seat. He saw some crackers and he decides to gets hungry and eats some crackers and that were left on the side of the, the passenger side there. Little did he know that those crackers were actually laced with rat poison. And um, he ended up actually passing away, but what the, the police and the, the driver, the owner of the vehicle were, were so adamant about was they were trying to stop him from actually eating the crackers. They were trying to get him to stop, trying to realize that it, don't eat the crackers in the passenger seat. And I thought of this story because so often when we run from God, we, we feel it is to escape his punishment. As this person was, was driving away afraid of the punishment of, of stealing the car, not realizing that eating the crackers was actually going to lead to his demise. But what we are actually doing when we run from God is we're eluding his rescue. And this topic of hell is not about God punishing his creation, but it's about his creation resisting his rescue. Let me say that again. Hell is not about God punishing his creation, but it's about his creation resisting his rescue. And I want you to think about all the pictures of hell that you've, you've had in, through tradition and, you know, if you've read Dante's Inferno or watched movies, and I, wanna, I want you to kind of get rid of those pictures for a moment and, and really start afresh because to understand this topic, we have to enter it with really a, an open heart and open mind because 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, 
tells us that God wants all of humanity to be saved. Look what he says here. He says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And to understand this topic, we must start there, that that God wants everyone to be spared what is hell. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth, which is salvation that is found only through his son, Christ Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man. He is is the only one between us and God that that can mediate this reconcile, this, this peaceful and merciful relationship between us and God. So, and keeping that in mind, let's talk about what hell is. What is it? You know, we have a lot of words for not necessarily hell, but the Bible has a few words that that kind of pinpoint this idea of death. Real fun topic to talk about today. The Old Testament, we see in the Hebrew tradition, we see the word sheol, sheol. In the Greek, we see things like Hades, the, the mountain of Tarsus. You probably have read these in your studies. This is really just the way that the biblical writers are relating to their culture around what death is. Because in humanity, there's something inherently designed and built in us that says there's got to be something more. And we see that and through every culture that's ever existed. There's different ways that they relate to it. But there's an idea that humanity is designed with that there is something else after death. There is some place that's after death. And in the Hebrew tradition, it was Sheol. It was these people where they died, they went to Sheol. If you were a Greek or a Roman, they went to Hades. And this is just where everybody went. And so you see the biblical writers talk about this idea of just death and then a place. And these are mostly literary styles by the ancient authors really relating to their audiences. But this isn't necessarily what we see hell as. In fact, the, the word hell itself is, is an old Norse word. It's, a, it's actually a, a, a word that just means the place where the dead go. So we're going to dive into deeper about what that actually means and what the Bible has to say about it. So I think the first thing that contrasts and compares with this idea of death is in, in a place and location is that hell is an actual destination. It is the logical, rooted place in reality that is the inevitable outcome of the decision to reject God, thus rejecting good. It is the logical and inevitable outcome for anyone who rejects God Therefore, rejecting good. You know, one of Jesus' famous lines is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. We're talking about an actual destination that is only found through Jesus. It's a simple result of a a moral agent, someone who can choose to say, you know what, I'm going to separate myself from God. I don't want anything to do with him. My way is going to be better than his ways. 
My relationship with him does not matter. In fact, I'm going to have other relationships. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. So we see this as a destination, don't we? Philippians 3.19 says their destiny is destruction. Those who reject Jesus as Lord and their God is their stomach and their God is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So we see hell is a destination that is something that people will, surprisingly enough, choose to separate themselves from God. The second component we see is hell is depicted as fire, kind of a a fitting thing to think about when you go outside today, isn't it? When you think about the smoke and as we were driving, I was driving back from Utah County's campus um, to see the, the, the red sun of the fires. Classic God sovereignty, right? But hell ha- or fire has a couple of functions we read in the Bible, two main functions. One is a testing or a judging. You know, but just by destroying things with fire that lacks value or in burning away husks to expose seed. So fire is used as for testing and, and judging and, and, and purifying as well. Fire purifies the situation of things and One passage that comes to mind is Paul in writing to the Corinthians. And he says, you know, once you're saved by grace, you know, what do you build your life on after that? Some of us will build our life on wood and straw. And some of us will build our life continually on on things that are precious metals like gold and silver. He says those things, those of us who build our lives on things that burn, We'll inevitably lose those things. Whereas the things that we, we build on that are, are, are precious, of the precious metals will last and be refined. And it's Paul's way of, of understanding how fire purifies and tests what our eternal perspectives are. That the things that we do eternally matter. The things we do in this life matter. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 40 through 43. He says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man, that's another title for Jesus, says, will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So there's a separation that occurs here, right? They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So we see all these components. We see fire separating, burning up the chaff, burning up the things that, of wickedness and sin and remaining the things that are righteous. And the fact that we find our righteousness in Jesus alone tells us that we will persevere only through that faith and grace in Jesus. And that's what he's trying to to convey here is that there's two separations that go on here. The righteous from the sin. And the third component I I feel like is, is really an interesting one is that hell is a place of death and of garbage. Of death and of garbage. You know, again, the, the word hell is, is 
um, translated as, as um, really just a place of death. Again, it's the Old Norse. That's how our, our King James Version bearers kind of came into the, the, to use the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the word that Jesus used for what we translate as hell. For example, uh, Mark 9, he has a couple of cases where he uses this, but one of them is, says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. That's the word Gehenna there, where the fire never goes out. And Gehenna is an interesting thing because it means the Valley of Hinnom. And if you know your, your second Kings, there should be a few things that pop out in your mind when you think of the Valley of Hanam. And this is where Ahaz and Manasseh actually burn human sacrifices to the false god Moloch. And so we see the Valley of Hanam tied into things like fire, idolatry, things that, that God in no way ever wanted to have happen. Jeremiah even says, he's, he says, God doesn't desire this, doesn't want this, never wish this. It's also the same valley where God destroyed the armies of Assyria. During the Old Testament times, the army of Assyria comes into Jerusalem, lays siege to it, and God kills 100,000 Assyrians in this valley. So it's also a valley of death and decay. At the time of Christ, or shortly after, it was used as a garbage dump by the, the people of Israel. And so when Jesus is painting this picture that it's better for you to cut off your hand than to be thrown into this place of Ganah, he's, he's talking about, or Gehenna, it's this place of, of death, destruction, fire, garbage. He, he's painting a picture that says, this is destruction. This is, this is where death is. And it's here at Gehenna, or Gehenna that all of these things will be destroyed. Jesus is saying that here at Gehenna, this is where sin and death itself dies in the valley of Hanam. Hell is the situation in which those who do not receive for themselves the gift of salvation made possible by Jesus Christ in his suffering and death. And so they must make their own payment of suffering and then death separated from the sustaining life of God and thus experiencing a second and final death. This is why as, as Christians, we hit the idea of grace through faith so hard because nobody can stand before God and say, I did enough. No one can stand before God and say, I did enough to pay the debt of sin in my life. This is why we focus so much on the finished work of Jesus because it is only through that that he took the actual forsaking for us. One of the, the, the events on the cross that stands out the most to me is when he is crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he actually becomes sin, forsaken by God. And without that righteousness that we are given, we are on our own before a holy God to suffer and to eventually be destroyed. So when the idea of hell and Gehenna is really where wickedness is destroyed forever. And again, where death itself dies. 
you know, we as Christians, we we love reading Revelation 21 and 22, right? The 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 hope of the new Eden and the coming of the new age, and he wipes every tear from our eyes. But it is here in the valley of Gehenna that God promises to destroy temptation. It's here that he destroys sin itself. It's here that he destroys wickedness and evil. And he says he ignites it with an extinguishing flame. This is a way of God promising that sin will never come back. That that evil will never rear its ugly head again. That once this is judged and completed, the fires will never go out. So when someone says, you know, are you saved? Kind of a common way that we like to talk in, in churches is, you know, are you saved? Is they're asking you the question is, are you spared of Gehenna? Do you know the righteousness of Christ? Are, are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus to be spared the wrath that is to come against sin and evil and wickedness? So a common question that you'll hear, and I'm sure most of you have heard it, How can a good God send people to hell? Anybody ever heard that question or thought that question before? How can a good God send people to hell? I'm going to give you three answers to that question to help equip you in your conversations with people. The first one is that no human being was ever created for hell. All humans were created in the image of God. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. Probably the most read passages of any book because most people start the first of the year reading Genesis 1 and 2 and then kind of give up after a while. But we were created in perfect relationship with God, weren't we? We were created and God said, this is very good. There's very few things that he says about his creation are very good and we are part of that. But in Genesis 3, we read about how humanity decided, you know, I want to be God. I want to be like God. I, I want to make these decisions myself and I want to separate from God. And this responsibility was then fallen on us to see, receive a gift of salvation. Even in Genesis 3, we see this in the very seed of what will come in the very chapter to which all of this occurred. God says that I will send a seed of Eve to stomp out the serpent's head. And at the same time, the serpent will strike the human's heel. That God had given us a promise in that very chapter that said, I will not forget who you originally were. I will not forget what you were created to be in relationship with me. And we see that through all the rest of human history from from Abraham to Israel, And then through Jesus Christ himself, the the culmination of all that was Israel to see the salvation come through him on the cross and the resurrection. So when someone asks, can a good God send people to hell? I say, he doesn't send people to hell. People send people to hell. God's goodness to offer salvation through Jesus is very good. That's why it's called the euangelion, the the good news. So is it it God's fault that people reject it? Like God says, here's a free gift of salvation that I completed for you, and yet people resist it. 
The second one, a good answer for that is hell as fire particularly points to God's determination to purify and clean all things. You know, if I like to clean, I don't know about you, anybody else like to clean? I, I kind of, it's like my zone, right? When I'm vacuuming and cleaning, that's like my zone. I'm, I got my audible books in there. Amy hates it most of the time. She's trying to talk to me and I can't, can't hear her. But he is going to clean up his creation. He is going to create everything new. And this means purging evil, wickedness, and destruction from his creation. That that won't exist any longer. When he talks about a new creation coming into place, this means he's wiping out all the things of evil. This fire will cleanse and purify all creation and never again will us as the faithful in Christ ever have to deal with that again. And we will never have to deal with temptation again. We will never have to deal with the repercussions of sin again. That our place in in all of God's creation is then perfectly aligned as it was in the Garden of Eden and restored. by Again, an unextinguishable fire that's This is something that will never change. God's goodness will burn out every semblance of evil that's left for us, for the faithful in Christ, as Ephesians 1 says. And the third one I would say, again, is is what Gehenna really is. When someone says, how does a good God send people to hell? I say, well, you need to understand what Gehenna is. What is the word that Jesus, how did Jesus understand the word hell? Because again, this is where God destroys evil forever. In Revelation, we see a picture of a fiery lake of sulfur and and we can smell that pretty easily if you go by the Great Salt Lake. We all know that smell. But this is where the devil and all of his minions, the principalities of evil will be destroyed. This is where they go. All those whispers and lies in your head, to your heart, trying to combat what God is doing, that will end. Who's looking forward to that? It's God's promise, actually, and commitment to bring that, to bring purity, health, and freedom to his creation. The thing that was lost in the garden, he will, dis- he will renew and recreate and destroy those that was lost in the valley of Hanan. That is where the devil and his demons are headed. I think that's why they're pretty bitter, don't you? But again, this is where death itself gets removed from our vocabulary. This is where death itself is removed from our vocabulary, from our minds. The fears of it are gone. The hurts of it are erased at Gehenna. That is a semblance of a good God, isn't it? of a loving God who wants to eradicate and destroy wickedness and sin. The God we serve pursues us, draws us, pleads with us to come to him. So we don't have to die in the valley of Hanam, but live forever with him. That is what God desires. To know you, to have a relationship with you, not to be in the valley of of Gehenna. And I'll kind of end with this. 
What if you could read your own obituary? Wouldn't that be interesting? You could read your own obituary before you died. Who's heard of uh, Alfred Nobel? Anybody Alfred Nobel? He was the inventor of the Nobel Peace Prize. But he had the unfortunate opportunity <laughs> to read his own obituary. His, uh, his brother passed away and a reporter at the time thought it was him. So the reporter wrote an obituary for Alfred Nobel. And it got to Alfred Nobel and, and this is what it said. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. And he died a very rich man. Imagine reading that at the, at the breakfast table after your brother passed. Of course, we understand that the reporter got it wrong. It was, it was Alfred's brother who died. But this had a lasting effect on Alfred. It was from this that he created the Nobel Peace Prize. It was from this that he said, we have to award the scientists and the writers who pursue peace because I don't want this to be my reality. And this story teaches us that few things will change as much as looking at our life as though it is finished. If we could read our own obituary, Few things will change us as much as looking at it from that perspective. Is our life marked and sealed with relationship to Christ? Or are we dependent on trying to atone for our own sins? Or are we fully committed, fully dependent on the grace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ? My hope that is that when you, when you hear this message is that we are a bit like Alfred. That we turn from maybe running from God, as it's so easy to do to run from his grace. In the meanwhile, eating rat poison like that thief in the car. But instead, to receive it, to bring receive it from a God who brings salvation through grace and faith to all who receive it that we choose life instead of death. Choose life instead of death. And again, a, a really famous story of Jesus is, he says at the, at the end of the age, the son of man will do a separation of sheep and goats. The sheep will be those who believe and are in the righteousness of Christ. And the goats are those who are not. And this story reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said. He says, in the end, there's two kinds of people. In the end, there's two kinds of people. Like Jesus said, there's two kinds of people. either a sheep or a goat. And C.S. Lewis says, there, the one type says to the Lord, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. And the other type says, the Lord says to them, your will be done. Your will be done. We choose to separate ourselves from Christ. We either receive it or reject it. And that analogy that C.S. Lewis gives should put us in a little bit of a, a place where we have to have a bit of urgency when we look at our lives. And so are we the ones who are bending to the Lord and saying, your will be done? Or are we going to be the ones that Lord says, your will be done? Live in separation from me. 
And you thought this world was rough. Wait until you have to be separated from the sustainer of all things good. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. Let this passage really sit in your heart. The gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That in us, we get to carry the very message of truth, the good news of salvation. That it's as simple as believing. And at that point, you are sealed and marked for eternity in a promise of God, guaranteeing you redemption, guaranteeing you eternal life, guaranteeing you a possession of God's to the praise of his glory. I love that passage because it reminds us that what Christ did is completely sufficient, isn't it? That he loves us so much to pursue us, that he loved us so much to be forsaken for us so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. That when we believe, we are marked in him. That when we heard the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. You know, and there's always two types of people. You know, there, again, common theme here. There's those who have never heard the message of truth. That God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That those who believe can have eternal life. And then there's us who know that message, but yet we don't really live it in urgency. We don't really look at others as, as a sense of they're going down the road of hell. And are we going to be a people who speak up, knowing that that is a real destination, that people we love, that people God created in the image of him are headed that way? We live in a unique time that God has placed us to bring the message of truth and goodness into the world. That's something that he has empowered his people, his possession to do. Will you uh, stand with me for, and as I wrap up here, I just want you to, to bow your heads. It's a moment to to focus in on, on the Lord right now. And I don't know where your walk is with him. I don't know what your relationship is with the Lord. Maybe this is the first time you've heard of this. Maybe it's the hundredth time you, you've heard this. But I want you to know that there is a good God who loves you, who died for you, who took on all the sins of the world for you who wants to give you his righteousness, who wants to clothe you in his righteousness. One of the most famous parables of Jesus 
is the one of the wedding banquet. When he says, if you have the right clothes on, you get to stay. But if not, you will be removed. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ because our own righteousness will not suffice. And so if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, if this is the first time you've heard this simple message of grace, that it was by grace that you were saved through faith, not of ourselves, so no man can boast, but as a gift. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. So this is between you and the Lord. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. And if you want to give your life over to the Lord, if you don't want to go down this, this road of hell and, and you want to have relationship with him for all eternity and be spared, we want to acknowledge that with you. We want to pray for you. We, we want to introduce you to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. So now is the day. Today, or today is the day and now is the time for you to stop running and to receive the eternal life that God wants for you. That's for people here in the room, or even if you're online watching this, it's for you. And for the rest of us, we have a a special and unique opportunity to bring the message of Jesus to the world. Again, a a great story to remember during this time. And I just want you to think about this as you close your eyes still. Jesus was sitting with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, there's a giant rock. Underneath that rock is what they called the gate of death, the gates of Hades. And Jesus takes his disciples there. And he, he puts his hand on that rock. And he says, guess what? The the gates of death will not prevail against my people. And that word prevail has a double meaning. Not only does it mean that death will never prevail against the people of God, but it will also not withstand the power that is coming through the people of God to take away death that we as a people are empowered to break down the very gates of death, that it will not withstand us. Are we a people that live that? That we are kicking down gates of death for the people in our lives by sharing who Jesus is, what he has done. So Father God, I pray for those who are surrendering their life to the Lord right now, who are turning from the wickedness and sin in their life and are pursuing you, completely dependent upon you, that we don't contribute an ounce to our salvation, but are completely dependent on the finished work of you. Lord, stir in their heart and in their mind Convict, Lord, Lord, those who need convicting, speak to their hearts. Tell them where they are at with you. And Lord, I pray that we as a people 
a people who are your possession to your praise and glory, Lord. Help us to not lose the urgency that we live in a world that is going straight to hell. But you have empowered us to be those who smash down the gates of death. That in us lives something powerful. In the words that we give and the message that we bring because of you brings life brings goodness, brings salvation. Let us be a people, Lord, who walk out this actively, who share the message of truth abundantly. Lord, work in our hearts. Show us the urgency in our lives that we know people every day who need to hear this message of truth that there is no other word, there is no other truth, there is no other way, there is no other life that is apart from you. Help us to live that as a people, Lord. Help us to be a people who, who mark that out in our lives and in the areas of our communities. The hell is a place and many people are going. But you have empowered us to stand in the gates to share your message to work alongside you as you work in the hearts of those around us. To remind them who they are, how much you love them, and how much you want them. How much you want to redefine them. How much you want to take away their, their hurt, their shame, their guilt, their condemnation, and you want to fill it with hope, joy, peace, patience, goodness, love, self-control. So Lord, I pray that you just anoint us, you empower us, keep this at the forefront of our minds this week. As we go about our, our daily tasks, help us to, to be aware of the opportunities before us to share the hope that is in you, the goodness that is you, the love that is you. So thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing today and in this week. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Go break down the gates of death.